If you're growing a business or just thinking about launching a startup, this is definitely the podcast for you. This is Fast Forward, brought to you by Tech Manchester. We support early stage tech focused businesses. Each week, we'll dive into the issues that we know keep entrepreneurs awake at night. We'll chat to experts who'll share their tips and advice on how to handle everything from raising finance, making your first hire, to getting your company noticed on social media or in the press. Running a business is a roller coaster. It's exhilarating, but it's pretty damn scary at times too. We're here to help you get your business off the ground and hopefully get a better night's sleep. It's hosted by me, Patricia Keating, Executive Director at Tech Manchester. Standing in a tin shed, waiting for a van to come. Oh, friend, have you seen where my golden tickets be? Welcome back to Fast Forward. Today we're going to look at how finding passion and purpose to give one million children a wonder-filled experience of science has led to a business. We'll also look at how a simplistic approach to raising funding to fund that business and a creative pre-hour strategy has allowed one founder to raise the 250000 that they needed in a day and has led to a host of commercial partnerships including that with Rolls-Royce. The Curiosity Box is the UK's first STEM subscription box for families and now also STEM data box for schools. I really enjoyed recording this podcast with Renee. It was a fascinating discussion and to hear firsthand from one of Melinda Gates' six women to look out for in STEM in 2018. Renee, um, the whole journey of you and how you've come to the UK um, and we're going to talk about today, but let's talk about a little bit about the passion that you're focused on at the minute, which is, is STEM. You're incredibly passionate about getting more children involved and interested in science. Where did that passion um, begin for you? Uh, well, you're right. At first, I think that we're living in a time when it's it's incredibly important that we are all a little bit more aware about what's happening in the world around us. And I think science is a very powerful way for us to look at the world and try and understand it better and ideally think about some solutions that are going to help us solve some of our, our big challenges. Uh, in terms of where that started, I think uh, it, it goes right back to when I was quite a young child. I was really curious. I definitely was one of those children that drove my parents mad asking why <laughs> all the time. Uh, and I just loved to try and understand more about how things worked. I love taking things apart. Didn't always manage to get them back together properly, but, you know, I just, I was really curious about scratching the surface of what I could see and finding out what was underneath there, what, what, what things were made up of and, and how they worked. Uh, and my mum really encouraged me to do that. And I do have a, uh, a kind of what I describe as my first, memorable wow moment. So one of those moments where you think, oh my goodness, that is amazing. And that was when I was about six and mum and I were wandering through my town back in Australia and we were by a river and she, for some reason, chose that moment to explain to me that water was made up of hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Mm -hmm. And I just remember standing and looking at the water thinking, oh my goodness, this thing that I sort of walk past and look at all the time and that is all around us that I drink, 
is made up of something that you can't even see. I found that concept just sort of blew my mind a little bit and made me think this is like what an explorer must feel like when they go and discover new territories. And this is around me in my life every day. And that's something that I can do. I can explore in my world. And that really was the trigger point for me to want to follow science through my life. It obviously explains a little bit to where the, the name of the business that you now run, the Curiosity Box, comes from because you were curious from a very, very early age. Yeah, and I think uh, I think science gets, you know, the perception of science is changing and it has become a lot more positive. But a lot of people I still hear all the time, uh, particularly grown-ups, saying that science was boring at school or that it wasn't for them or it was too hard. And actually, for me, there, there, are, there are two different parts of this science puzzle. One is about becoming a scientist and specializing in some area of science and and, and learning the facts and the theories that go around that. And the other side of it is really what I'm passionate about, which is not so much about that, more about all of us feeling like we have ownership of the understanding of the science in our everyday. So everything from like, you know, why does my shampoo lather? Uh, how does my <laughs> That's a really work? good question. That's you know, really it's stuff like question. that, that actually you kind of, when you start asking these questions, you think, yeah. my goodness, this, this, you know, there is so much to learn and it's completely and utterly accessible to everybody, regardless of whether you want to be a scientist, feel like science is for you. Actually, for me, it's for everyone when you think about it in the context of the real world. Yeah. Now, uh, as I'm not um, uh, sort of a, a local to Manchester, nor are you a local to the UK, as you mentioned there, you're from... Uh, Australia. Um, tell us a bit about where you were from there and what brought you to the UK. Yeah, I was born in a, a small town. Uh, my closest big city was Canberra. And it was, it's a great place. You know, there's loads of open space. And I was a very outdoorsy kid. So I loved that. I loved exploring all the wildlife and nature and everything. Um, but it, it was, it was kind of tough at times. There were uh, not many sort of role models that in this, in certainly in the science sector that I knew, I didn't know anyone who was a scientist and I didn't know anyone who'd been to university. Um, and for the vast majority of my early childhood, it was just my mom and I. So we, um, I went and saw my dad every second weekend, but it was mom I was with all the time. Uh, and we, you know, we did the best that we could. We didn't have a lot, but uh, it was a fairly insular environment, I think it's fair to say. Didn't have much of a concept of the big wide world and what was mm. out there. Uh, and when I went to university, I ended up going to the closest university to where I lived because I couldn't afford to to go anywhere else, basically. Mm. I had to still live at home. Uh, and by the time I finished my undergraduate degree, I was just like, I need to get out. I need to get out of here. And <laughs> that go inquisitive and mind of yours doesn't uh, extend yeah. beyond water. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I find interactions with people and connections between people utterly enthralling and fascinating. So I really felt a pull to get out and meet different people from different parts of the world. Uh, and so I went traveling. I went backpacking around America on my own for uh, three months, which was fabulous. I think my mum was terrified the whole time I was gone. Um, but it, it was really great. I met so many amazing people. 
Uh, and I had organized to become an au pair when I arrived in the UK. And that was mm-hmm. going to give me a base and all my accommodation and food sorted out so that I could keep doing sort of exploring in Europe before yeah. heading back to Australia. Great plan. Uh, and yeah, well, you know, it was, a, I thought, a watertight plan. But while I was backpacking and bearing in mind this was in a time before mobile phones and internet was as widely available as it is now, uh, the au pairing agency I had sorted out my work with had gone bankrupt. So I had budgeted very tightly to be able to start work pretty much as soon as I landed in the UK. So I had £16 and three nights in a local youth hostel in London booked when I arrived here and got the news when I arrived that I didn't have any job to go to. Wow. So that was a fairly character-building time, how I like <laughs> to think about it now. Uh, it was pretty stressful. And again, I didn't know anyone here. So yeah. I got a bit lucky in that one of the people I'd met in my travels in America had a friend of a friend who had a sofa that I could stay on in London for a couple of weeks. So that was very generous, um, letting a complete stranger into your house and, and staying on the sofa. And I copied my CV and went into Covent Garden and just gave it out to all the retail places because I thought they're always going to need somebody. <laughs> and that, yeah, and ended up getting a job in a camping shop. So I'm, I'm pretty mean tent putter-upper now. <laughs> uh, well, we're all made learn. up with different skills, more than just one yeah. thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and that also gave me sort of a network of friends that helped me to get my feet on the ground slowly but surely. But it was an incredibly tough time. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, not... London is not a friendly place if you don't have money. And so I lasted I lasted about four months, five months in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after the camping shop, I actually got a, another job as a temp in an organization that became the National Patient Safety Agency. And I absolutely loved that job. And I came in just as a temping admin person. But the uh, director of that organization is an amazing woman called Kirsten Knox. And she really became my first proper mentor. And she obviously saw some potential in me. And when she got offered a job in Oxford to help set up uh, what became the National Cancer Research Network, she asked me to come with her and do an internship. And that's how I've ended up in Oxford. And I have been here ever since. Mm. You've touched on some really interesting points there. We've just done a recent podcast with Kirsty James about the power of networks and the importance of making good connections. And they apply to every aspect of your life. And you've just described it perfectly in terms of how that ability to connect with other people and build networks around you um, actually, you know, made sure that there was a riff over your head at one point in your life. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that I, really struggled in London aside from the money. And I remember I was keeping a diary at that time uh, and writing quite a lot. And one of the things I wrote almost obsessively about was the lack of eye contact between people Mm. in London. Uh, And I, you know, I'd been to some big cities by then. I'd been to New York and I'd been to Los Angeles, but London really struck me as a place where human connection was a very difficult thing to find. Uh, And I think that was one of the real reasons why I struggled to actually myself make a connection with the city and and wanted to get out really at my earliest opportunity. Yeah, no, I can relate to that. I make it a challenge for myself to make eye contact with people on the tube and talk to people on the train when I'm in London. Yeah. 
And my London friends yeah. think I'm mad because they're like, don't do that. You're going to get stabbed. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to get stabbed. It's totally fine. They're actually normal people. No, well, I think a lot of the time I find that the people that you unexpectedly make a connection with or you you go out of your way to to try and connect with hmm. can end up being, you know, really remarkable opportunities yeah. in terms of personal growth or even sometimes business opportunities. I actually uh, am working with a partner I certainly did in the early days of Curiosity Box, who was a, a chap I happened to sit next to on a plane and had a chat with him and ended up opening up some opportunities. He made some connections for me yeah. and that's led to, you know, real tangible opportunities. So I'm a big that's fan it. of of that. Yeah. So you followed your um, your business mentor out to Oxford to the National Cancer Research Centre in Oxford um, for, and you did that for, for seven years. Um, how did that lead you then to launching Curiosity Box? And what well, is it? When I, <laughs> tell, it let's yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about what it is. Good question. Uh, so while I was at the National Cancer Research Network, the thing that, I, that really excited me, that I really loved the most, was bringing together the patients, the doctors, the scientists, the politicians, the members of the media, and trying to get them all to understand each other to try and find ways that we could get new cancer treatments to patients more quickly. That was kind of the crux of it. Mm. Uh, and I love taking these complex scientific ideas and then thinking about really engaging ways of explaining those to somebody who's not an expert in that. Uh, and I wanted to be able to do more of that kind of thing. But at the time, public engagement in science or science communication really wasn't a career option, certainly not like it is now. There wasn't much funding available for it. And there certainly weren't employed positions in organizations like the university that, you know, would have supported me to do more of that. Uh, so I, I and, and the trigger point really for change was that I had my first child. So I had my son, Patrick, and I wanted to at least try and be able to do a half decent job of, of being a mum and also keep doing something that kept my brain going and, mm. and kept me sort of pushing further and further towards what has evolved into a real purpose for me at the time I didn't really yeah. recognize it but now it's it's very clear and that drive has always been there uh, so that's when I set my first company up uh, that company is called Watson and we work with big science organizations and help them to do more in the community more outreach more engagement work yeah and one of the things that I did with that was the Oxfordshire Science Festival. I ran that for a good few years, about eight years, and really helped that to grow from something that was um, quite small to one of the biggest science festivals in the country. And through that, I kept hearing the same thing over and over again from parents and from children particularly, which was, why can't we have this kind of experience of science more often? Yeah. And we weren't doing, as far as I could see, we weren't doing anything particularly complicated. We were just doing the same thing that's always inspired me, which is looking at the world around us and then bringing the science that's already there to life in a really hands-on and engaging way. Yeah. And so the idea for Curiosity Box, I guess, started bubbling away through those experiences. And then with Watson, we did a uh, about five years ago now, we did a 
strategy workshop with the team and sort of looking at the next five years, the kind of things we wanted to achieve. And one of the things that I really, really wanted to spend some time investigating was how we could get more of those kind of experiences happening for, for all people. And I did some research and nobody in the UK was doing a <clears throat> science subscription box. There was a company in the US that was doing it very well. And so I thought, well, I've got loads of ideas for great activities that would fit in a box. Let's give it a go. Uh, and that was how Curiosity Box started. That's what we do, predominantly looking at how we get people doing more science exploration and engineering at home. And recently, we've just launched our For Schools product as well. So we now have a product called STEM Day in a Box as well, which is to try and help primary school teachers deliver more engaging hands-on science in, cl- in the class. If I think back to the story that you told about your mum and walking along the river, um, it feels like you've built a business around the experiences that your mum created for you when you were younger and that she was an incredible role model for you as you grew up. What would you say? I Yeah, I think you've, you've totally nailed it. And she still is. I mean, she's, it, in terms of somebody who I think has far more of an impact on the people and the world around her than she would ever recognize. Um, but that's certainly mum. She, she's, she's a wonderful person. People remember her because she is deeply, deeply kind and very generous and is also quite curious still. You know, <laughs> she's a grandmother now and, she, and she's still very curious. So, yeah, she's, she's <clears throat> constantly inspiring me and I feel very, very fortunate to have had her in my life. Um, and you've become a role model yourself. Mind you, I'd love to see what kind of experiments she's doing in her back garden these days. Um, now, your yeah. um, your job title, actually, uh, probably I think you have my favourite job title in the whole world. Um, can you tell us um, what that is and <laughs> why that job title came about? Yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of a funny one. So it's Head of Explosions. <laughs> Uh, and one of the reasons it is kind of a play on words. So I do love doing literal explosions. You know, when you go into a school and for me, one of the biggest impacts is getting those kids faces lighting up and them having those wow moments that I talk a lot about. Uh, and an explosion is a great way of doing that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I also think that, uh, when you're starting your own business, it's really important to be clear about where your biggest value lies. It's very tempting and very easy to get sucked into doing a bit of everything because someone's got to do it. And when you're starting something up, there's an all hands on deck kind of reality. Uh, But I think I'm quite clear about the fact that one of my biggest contributions to the success of the business is around ideas. And so there's a bit of a kind of explosive ideas play Mm -hmm. onwards thing there as well. So the business um, launched off the back of this learning that you had done through the Cancer Research Network and you were really just packaging up um, the experiences that you had had as a young person and also that people were crying out for in, your, um, in the network. Um, but how has, the, how has the business evolved? What did, it, what did it start with and how has that grown and developed over the, over the period of the last few years? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one because when I look back what did we start with? We really literally started with what was potentially a a fairly crazy idea. Um, We didn't start with many resources and we didn't start with much expertise. Actually, we've had a very, very steep learning curve. You know, there were certain things that we were really good at, but 
this is essentially Curiosity Box. We manufacture everything ourselves. We wanted to keep the manufacturing in the UK. Um, and we use a, a team of of mums who sort of fitted in between school hours um, to come in and help us to manufacture and, and pack the boxes. Uh, so there's this whole manufacturing, production, logistics, distribution part of the business that we've had to learn from scratch. And I think there's a benefit in that because it means that you can look at lots of examples of, of where that's done and pick the bits that you think fit for you and make something that's really fit for purpose. Uh, but, you know, there's also the fact that essentially we're a toy brand and, and the toy market is a very crowded market. Mm-hmm. We're competing against, in terms of kids' time, we're competing against things like Fortnite. <laughs> so that's an incredibly hard battle that to fight. That is so sad. That is such a sad comparison, but I know it, Well, it is. But it's it's it is yeah. kind of the reality. Um, so, you know, we've had to learn a lot from taking something from an idea, actually making it into a minimum viable product, and then evolving that into the product that you really want it to be, making the impact that you really want it to have, mm. is is definitely not for the faint-hearted. Um, and we have gotten so many things wrong along the way. But one of our values is fail bravely, because I think if you fail quickly and often and learn from it, then that's how you innovate. I like that. That's really nice. And it sounds like you've uh, put a, together a really nice social enterprise there where you're actually helping other um, other women who are on career breaks um, to find value and purpose and um, keep them in the um, keep them in the employment market, which is so so important in terms of maintaining their confidence and their connection with um, with the business community. Yeah, and it's massively beneficial to us because I I have to spend a remarkably small amount of time on what would be traditionally called performance management. You know, I have a team of people who are really clear about their priorities. They've got, they're balancing their home, their work life. Um, Their family is always going to come first. And so we need to make sure that we create an environment that's going to nurture and motivate them to give us the best that they can in the time that they have Mm -hmm. available. And I think that becomes a mutually beneficial relationship then. So I I think it's fantastic. I don't, it baffles me why more people don't offer a flexible working environment because you get such great people when you do. I think they come with, um, you know, once you become a parent, I think you come within a whole new set of skills, which are lying around negotiation with your children. I know Sarah, our podcast producer, talks frequently about negotiating with her two-year-old about getting their shoes on in the morning, um, as yeah. well as ti- oh time management yeah. and being incredibly productive people as a result um, because they have so much to do. Um, yeah. So let's look at um, last year then. Um, I, we touched on in the introduction about some of the amazing um, things that, that happened. Tell us about um, the whole, how did how did the Belinda Gates um, thing come about? How did the, How did you become one of those six women in STEM um, and um, what happened as a result of that? Well, it was a, I mean, it's up there with one of the best moments of my life when I when I saw her post, I have to say. Yeah. She's someone I've admired for a very long time in terms of somebody who balances beautifully having a lot and doing a lot of good with it. And I think there are not enough examples of people that we hear about that do that. So I've, I've long admired her. And uh, how it came about was that uh, 
somebody somewhere had seen uh, some, an interview that I'd done or and sort of heard about the work that we were doing. And interestingly, it came out uh, it came out in December, and then Melinda Gates had had pulled it and posted it in January. And I wasn't in the country at the time; I was in Laos with my family. And actually, at the time that she posted it, I was in a Laos hospital because my daughter had contracted meningitis. Oh, my and uh, yeah, it was a it was a fairly stressful time. So it wasn't actually until I got back to the UK. Fortunately, my daughter is fine. Thank goodness for um, medical care all over the world, being able to save lives. Um, uh, yeah, we were we were back in the UK, and then somebody shared it with me and said, wow, this is amazing. And that was the first time I saw it. So that was on LinkedIn. And then I went back and, and sort of dug in a bit to find out where it had come from. And mm. yeah, it was amazing. I can imagine that had quite a positive impact on your online uh, sales because I believe you sell your products through, through your online platform. Is that right? Yeah, we do. So our, all of our products are available on our website primarily. We are starting to have a look at potentially stocking in some select places but yeah predominantly it's all purchasable online at the minute yeah. and that kind of thing does have an impact um i think it tends to be a cumulative impact rather than a kind of direct big yeah, impact a massive, so you get yeah, lots a of people hit. looking and yeah and and usually then maybe they'll come back and it it can take some time to actually see a substantial impact from yeah from that kind of publicity is what i found anyway I'd say once you're on um, Melinda Gates' radar, you'll not go off for a while. So I'd expect some something further from that. Um. So where did the where did the funding and the raising come in? Like, what prompted you then to start? Um. How how where were you on the funding journey? And um, what prompted you to raise? What were you raising for? And what was that whole experience like? I know there are many many female entrepreneurs who struggle with this. Entrepreneurs in general, like you know, it's like you have to do a hundred pitches um before you'll secure you know your investment. Um, but then if that's for everybody, then only one paid a pound goes to female founded businesses in the UK. So, you know, you had a mountain and a mountain and then Everest to, to climb. Like what what motivated you to do it? How did you do it? Um, what were the challenges and how did you overcome them? I know that's about a million questions, but I know there's a lot of women <laughs> who want to know the answers. Yeah, it's it's a funny one, I think, because I didn't I didn't think about it as being even a molehill. It was just a, a thing that we needed to do. So we'd come to a point with Curiosity Box where I recognized that if we wanted to be able to grow in the way that I think we can, then we needed to invest in a team. So Christmas 2017, there were there was myself and two other people in the team. Mm-hmm. And those two people were both part-time. So there wasn't even the equivalent of three people. Uh, and we'd doubled in size in our first year and we'd gotten to the point where that was just not sustainable anymore. So uh, we also, I knew that we needed to invest in marketing and we had some good stats by then on how much it cost us to get a customer. So the raise was really to gear us to getting to the point of breaking even. And we calculated how much we needed to be able to build the team, the tech and the infrastructure that we needed to be able to get us to break even point. I've learned a lot through this process. I, I knew nothing about fundraising at all. And as far as I was aware, I didn't really move in circles with people who had the kind of money that angels have to invest in what is essentially a very high risk project like, you know, a startup is. Yeah. 
Um, and so originally I thought, well, what we'll do is we'll start with a crowdfunding platform that, so not one of the big public ones like Crowdcube, but a smaller one that matches projects to investors and angels. Okay. Uh, and we went through the process of setting up with them, which was good. And it was a, it was a great process to go through in terms of due diligence on where we'd come to and what we needed to do next and planning. Yeah. Uh, However, what I found was that everybody that I was having conversations with were all men. And not that I have anything against men, but I was like, I can't end up with all the people on my shareholder book being male. I just can't have that. Yeah. So then I decided I needed to go and proactively try and seek out some female investors. So the crowdfunding was sort of running on the, on the side in parallel. I started looking up female investor networks and the one that really resonated with me uh, was Adelpha. And through Adelpha, I managed to get uh, three investors who have been fabulous, such brilliant, supportive, and really insightful mentors in, in those people as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also did something that I didn't think would have the impact that it did, which was I put together a, a little post literally just a picture of myself blowing something up um, <laughs> and said, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's always going to have an impact. Um, and, and just the words, I'm selling a slice of my beautiful company. And I put that on LinkedIn and within 24 hours, I'd raised all the money. That's amazing. So it, it the power surprised of PR. me a lot. The power of PR. <laughs> it surprised me a lot. Uh, so now I have uh, 14 investors and 50% of those are women, uh, which is way, way, way above the percentage of yeah. women investors there Million. are. Um, well done. But it shows you that with a bit of effort, it can be done. And I think having done all the due diligence work for the crowdfunding platform, <clears throat> it meant that when I got into those conversations with potential investors, I had all the answers ready. Yeah. And I think it's easy, key, you're making it easy for them to say yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and for me, you know, yes, this is a business that I think can be very successful, but all of what I talk about and all of what I do centers around that North Star, which is this purpose of getting science to everyone. And I think when I have conversations, I am very open about the fact that this is a purpose driven business and that if if investors wanted it to be a quick buck kind of return on investment, then I'm not the right not person to... to be investing in. Uh, and I think that level of transparency also means that you end up with a group of people who are in there with you as partners rather than people who are going to be putting pressure on you to try and do things differently. Yeah. So it's coupling a, a good investment strategy with um, making sure that you're well prepared, which you use the crowdfunding platform to do that. And there's lots of ways to do it to make sure that you've got those checklists and, and those things done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, did you initially start to raise, was it always, did you start out in December 2017 saying, I'm going to raise a quarter of a million or did that number move or how did how did that be the number that you decided to go for? And was it uh, always didn't. the number? No, so our original um, our original number was one hundred and fifty thousand, mm-hmm. and that was based on what I had calculated that we actually needed. Yeah. Um. So we overraised, which was great because actually, in hindsight, one of the biggest mistakes that I've made 
fairly consistently throughout this journey is underestimating how much things are going to cost. Yeah. Uh, I am, I am notoriously ambitious and optimistic and I, I now have a team of people around me who help me to manage that. But in the <laughs> early days I didn't. So, um, yeah, I think I've learned a lot about that. I think the, the, the common thing is that you'll hear like entrepreneurs say is that whatever you've predicted, it'll take twice as long and cost twice as much. Yeah, um, so and, and t- that certainly played out for me. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about the highs and, um, you know, the, your, the incredibly the creative way that you've come about doing that. And we've touched on one of the lows with your with your daughter. Um, but you also had a personal um, a personal health scare. Um, so your your year really was a bit of a, a roller coaster. Can you share a little bit about us about that? Yeah, I um I found out in June last year, and I, I am I'm the sort of person who always throws myself into things whole you know wholeheartedly, and this was no exception. So rather than what you know most people when they're run down or or something like that, we would get a cold and stay in bed mm-hmm. for a couple of days. I broke out in what was originally thought to be chickenpox, turned out to be a rare autoimmune disease, uh, blisters all over my body. I looked like something out of horrible histories, like some hideous Victorian <laughs> illness. You were a walking experiment. <laughs> I was, and I did, I did spend a lot of time in my bed because I, I couldn't leave my bed for a month, um, sort of swinging between being totally fascinated with what was going on and feeling very, very <laughs> sorry for myself. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, eventually we got to the point where I had to have some steroid treatment and that made it calm down. And they've told me that I just have to, uh, have a, the dermatologist consultant number in my wallet and I may never have it happen again, or it may happen again and it might be worse. And I just have to see how I go. And it's kind of luck of the draw really. Um, and I call them if, if anything starts kind of getting, getting out of hand, uh, but it was a really, actually really valuable wake-up call for me to be able to recognize that I hadn't built a safety net around myself to protect myself from mm. the the world that I was building. Yeah. Uh, and since then, I've become much, much better at being able to identify the early warning signs when I know that it's there's, it's too much. And that's as much my mental health as it is my physical health. Yeah, I think it's about looking after yourself and that kind of self-care, making sure that you're strong. And, you can, you know, definitely important to not be the single point of failure in any part of your life, your family, your your business or wherever it might be. Um, yeah. And that led on to another um, sort of another development, which I thought I think over a period of time you might have thought it was it was a it was a cancer scare, was it? Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> I almost forgot about that. Um, yeah, well, you know, growing up in Australia, I um, I had lots of exposure to the sun, yeah. even when I didn't, um, you know, we just didn't have the awareness about sun protection. I'm pretty yeah. obsessive now. My my children get lathered in everything and, and sun hats all the time and, and everything like that. But um, I've now had actually two cancers removed. Um, fortunately, I'm, I've been very on top of it. So that's, been something that's been fairly straightforward but I am really conscious that you know my skin is a kind of ticking time bomb and I am constantly vigilant about about that um and I coincidentally actually at the same time I don't think I've ac- ever actually told anybody about this but I had a um a breast cancer scare as well 
uh, which turned out to be fine. So uh, that was luckily um, nothing to worry about. But yeah, it was it was a very big year of very big highs and sort of very personal big lows mm. as well. So yeah. And those are just some of the struggles that you have running a business and juggling family life. And I think you've been very open and honest in the past about how lonely that path can be for a founder, particularly at the earlier stages when you were saying, you know, there was, you know, there was just about two of you in the business. Um, Do you think that more entrepreneurs should speak out about how they're failing? Yeah, I think so, because I've not met anyone for whom that isn't the reality. And it's a bit like... It's a bit like having children or you know, I had a miscarriage before I had my first child. And when I started telling people about that, there was this, I didn't realize it was such a taboo subject. And the more you talk about these things, the easier it makes you, makes you be able to deal with it because you know that actually it's really normal and really common for, for you to feel like that. And I think a lot of the time when people struggle with mental health and really struggle to get through that, it's because it feels like you're the only one in that situation. Mm. And certainly for me, knowing that the way I'm feeling isn't completely, you know, mad, (laughs) actually is half the battle won. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know what Um, I mean. So, yeah, I I really think we should should share more. Uh, I I mean, you know, I, I know not everyone feels comfortable doing that and there are lots of different ways that you can share I'm a, I'm a natural oversharer, so you know, that kind of um, sharing, I think, is comes quite naturally to me. But I think if that's not your style, you still need to talk to someone about it. You need to find a different setting that is going to, whether that be a business coach or a peer mentoring group or seeing a counsellor or a therapist, whatever it is, yeah. find your thing because you need to talk. That works for you. Yeah, no, 100% agree. So if you reflect back over, I guess, the last sort of five, six years, you've, you've, you've met quite a few obstacles along the way, um, but have massively overcome them and uh, are continuing on your, on your moonshot. Um, but what would you say the biggest challenges, if you had a moment to reflect back, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced over that time, both, I guess, professionally and, and personally, and how did you overcome them? Well, this is a tricky one. I mean, I think that there are there are a big range of things. So one of the ongoing challenges I find is, is there's a very delicate line to dance around being a mother, being a wife, and being a person who needs to dedicate a huge amount of time and energy to this thing that I've created that I love as well. So sharing myself around those fundamentally important parts of my life creates a constant tension. You know, there's Mm. a constant tension there. Uh, And I feel like most of the time nowadays, I get that reasonably right uh, because I have put in a lot of effort and I have put in a lot of sort of infrastructure in place to help me to manage that. Even really simple things using tech, like I've set my phone so that um, I can't use it between certain times so that I don't get tempted to just do a few emails Mm -hmm. rather than have a conversation with my husband. Yeah. Uh, You know, little things like that, I think, can actually make a really massive difference. 
So that on a personal front, I think, is the, is the biggest ongoing challenge. And my children are now 13 and 11. And although they don't need me so much in a sort of physically demanding way anymore, the, the mental demands are <laughs> massive, absolutely massive, and trying to navigate nurturing and facilitating the growth through adolescence of a, of a small human you care very much about is is something I just is blows my mind on a daily <laughs> basis and I kind of bumble my, my way through it and and hope that they're not going to need too much therapy at the end you know that's kind of as good as it gets I think <laughs> um but aside from that I think the biggest challenge we have in the business at the moment is a really common one um, that is being exacerbated by the current economic environment, and that is cash flow. So we are growing really well. We've got some amazing big partnerships, and I think I can probably, this is probably the first public announcement of this, but we've just um, secured a partnership with Rolls-Royce to make them an electric flight kit for schools, which I'm super excited about. Amazing. Uh, yeah, really, really great. So there are more and more of these sort of larger partnerships that we are forming that are going to help to transform Curiosity Box and, and help us to have, I think it'll probably end up being a global impact, which is great, hmm. but we're still a small business and we've still got to buy stuff. And we're a very, it's a, you know, when you're manufacturing something, it's a very cost heavy, heavy business to run. And so managing us through this process is incredibly difficult and it's being made doubly difficult because of this economic uncertainty around Brexit and mm. politics in general the in this B-word. country is making people hesitate to buy things. Yeah. Um, so that I think at the moment is our, is our biggest challenge. We've touched on your, your biggest challenges and um, actually one of them might link to um, the next question, which is um, what would you say your greatest success has been? Uh, do you know what? I think I I often think to myself that if I could run this business without money and the currency that we could use was the feedback that we get from families using our boxes, that would be totally enough for me. So I think that the biggest success that I've had so far with Curiosity Box has been actually realizing this idea that we could get more kids doing science and engineering at home. And particularly the fact that we have, in a very agile and quick way, tailored the product so that it opens up the demographic, not to just the children whose parents perhaps already taking them to lots of science museums Mm. and buying them all the science kits, but to kids who, who are from backgrounds where, like mine, that didn't necessarily have all of that ready-made when they were born. Uh, And the amount of times I've heard from our parents uh, saying, you know, this is amazing. We're doing it together. It's giving us real quality time. Actually, I wish science had been like this when I was a kid Mm. because I probably would have really liked it. Yeah. Uh, That for me is, that's the gold of everything I'm trying to do is, is sort of motivated by that. Uh, there are loads of amazing experiences that we've had on the way, things like Melinda Gates calling, a, calling us out, mm-hmm. um, other press coverage that we've had, actually hitting my, sales milestones, things like that, 
they're they're all things that make the journey amazing uh but it really is it's the it's the kids who are changing their perceptions of themselves in the context of science that really is the biggest win for me amazing you mentioned earlier at the very beginning um, about mentors and um, about your first mentor who brought you along to um, Oxford and then also I presume particularly the, the female investors that came on board at the early stage of Curiosity Box. So you've had um, quite a lot of advice over the years. Um, if you had to think back now, what would you say is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Oh my goodness, that's a difficult <laughs> no. question. The best piece of advice I've ever been given. Do you know what? I probably have to go back, and this is actually really timely because uh, I think because of the background I came from, and this still happens, I doubt myself and my um, whether I deserve to have success. Uh, and that was that really came to a, a big head when I was at university and. My mum was getting divorced for the second time and it was it was a really tough time. And I had a lecturer, his name was Fife Bygrave, and uh, I actually mentioned him in an interview last year and I got an email from him last week saying how happy he was that I had, you know, found this sort of joy in the work that I'm doing. Amazing. And I have a really clear memory of being in a lecturer and I had to do an oral presentation on one of the biochemical pathways in the body, which I'd found fascinating. He was a brilliant teacher. And I did this oral presentation and at the end of it, he came up and he said, said, you have a real talent for speaking. You need to believe in yourself. And that is probably the best piece of advice. I, I, I do actually reflect that little voice pops into my head and has done throughout my entire life in moments of doubt. So I think that is probably it. And I think that's culminated then um, most recently in your TEDx talk. Yeah, that was awesome. Oh, my goodness. I <laughs> loved it that? so much. I um, I really, I thought I'd be really nervous. So this was in Athens. It was their 10th anniversary. So it's one of the more well-established TEDx um, events. And there were 2,000 people that sold out in this amazing building, a bit like the Royal Albert Hall and uh and i thought i would be absolutely petrified but i was so prepared and by i remember standing in the in the wings just before like while they were introducing me just before i went on thinking this is so easy because all i need to do is speak my truth mm. and that's what i did and it felt so good i came off and i was like i want to do it again i want to do it again that was so much fun uh and then Two people after me was Aaron Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, talking about, <laughs> um, you know, passive violence and, and mm. peaceful protest and, and all the stuff that he learned from his grandfather. And so, you know, 40 minutes later, I'm sitting in the audience in tears watching this incredibly inspiring man. And, you know, I don't think I fully digested what being a part of that, what impact that's going to have on me, because. Uh, it was it was a truly unbelievable experience. It was great. Well, time will tell. Um, so we've learned a lot about um, about you and Curiosity Box and your how, how it's come about to where it is today. Um, but looking ahead, and no doubt that TEDx experience may formulate this, but um, 
What is your vision for the future? Well, I set myself a a target, which is to give one million young people and a wonder-filled experience of science. I've got up to about 125,000 so far. So I've got a way to go yet, but I'm on my way. Mm-hmm. And everything that I do and all the choices that I make at the moment are geared around whether it impacts that mission. So what I want to do is to obviously grow Curiosity Box. And we've got some really exciting international partnerships that are going to be coming to realization in the next 12 months, which will help with that. And then I want to do more of the of the kind of going out, sharing the ideas that we have. Um, I'm really, really passionate about the way that we need to fix education. I think at the moment, particularly in this country, we're letting kids down uh, and we're stripping all the joy, creativity and curiosity out of learning. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to get that back in. So I want to talk as much as I can about that because I know there are a lot of people out there who want to lend their voice to that collective shout to change the way we do education. Uh, and I mean, really, ideally, when I kind of close my eyes and imagine what my dream of doing, you know, what I'd be doing if I was you know, living my dream, then that would be going out to places where kids have got access to nothing, no school, least of all science, mm. and helping to build whatever is needed to be able to give those children something, some access to science. Um, and that's, I did a little bit of that when I was in Laos as well. We did some workshops with an with a education project out there, and I want to be able to do more of that. So the more successful Curiosity Box is, the more of that I can do, and that's really what's driving me at the moment. Hugely aspirational, and I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today, Renee. I cannot wait to see um, where Curiosity Box goes and when Melinda um, brings you to America to showcase you. (laughs) No doubt that's going to happen in the future. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, If you have any um, thoughts around um, how to find inspiration for your future business and that's something that... um, that you are maybe one of those entrepreneurs who wants to start a business and hasn't really worked out yet what to do, perhaps take a leaf out of um, Renee's book. And I guess it's all that learning along the way and discovering what it was that that you loved and then finding a passion which you could turn into uh, a business and also make a huge impact on so many other people's lives. And um, hopefully then if you can find those ideas, that will give you a better night's sleep. Thank you. Thank you. Feel from the world.